You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Ephesians, we are looking at this, a new people in a new world. I am loving this series. This is week three. We're looking at a church raised by grace today. I'm loving being back in the university, but I recognize that it's not easy for all students. I don't know if you're you're aware of this. They're doing lectures online. They're having to stay in halls of residence. Do they get a refund? Are they allowed home for Christmas? I saw this sign this week at one university. Her Majesty's Prison. Help, please send beer. I guess if you're really honest, and uh, it's easy to make a joke of it, it can feel quite hopeless. Golly, what's it all going to be like? It seems so uncertain. And I guess the honest truth is this passage starts with that word. If I had to summarize the first three verses of that, I would say it's summed up in one word, hopeless. Hopeless. Yet you made all this effort to come to church, to put on your mask, (laughs) to queue down the one-way system or to switch online to be told it's hopeless. But Paul is addressing them and he's saying, look, I want you to realize things are pretty hopeless. He, he outlines here, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's where we get it from. Many would say that's external, that's internal, that's hostile battle. Things are difficult. He talks about trespasses, he talks about sins. Trespass is when you, you, you fail, you, you lapse. Sin where you miss the mark. Things just go horribly wrong. And he's writing to these Christians and saying, things are pretty hopeless. Do you recognize that? Sometimes we don't even know it if we're brutally honest. I know one time, you know, driving in France, I'm just in my car, going down the road, smiling happily, thinking, oh, this is lovely. What a nice country lane. Until, you know, five minutes later, you suddenly realize I'm on the wrong side of the road going in the wrong direction. And maybe I hadn't even realized how hopeless it was. I guess that is the challenge that he's writing. Some people, let's be honest, you've got the body of a sports star. You've got the mind of an academic. You've got the personality of a performer. But do you know God? Are you known by God? Because Paul is writing and saying, look, if you do not know God, actually saying, he's saying basically you're dead. You're dead. He's saying this, the gospel is not a drowning person that needs a lifeboat. He's saying the gospel is not a sick person who needs a doctor. He's saying the gospel is not a sleeping person who needs waking up. He says the gospel is a dead person that needs a miracle. And so what you've got to understand is he's saying here that things are really, really tough. I read this story, you can't believe it, in London, about a guy that was so rich he didn't need the rent on his house. He was going away for some long period, and he said to these two guys, if the house is so big, you, you can have one floor each. I just want £10 a month rent. But I want you to check the emails. Just find out what's going on. Anyway, one of the guys, I mean, he absolutely parties wild, and the place is trashed. The other guy is really neat and organized, but neither of them pay the rent, and neither read the emails. So when the the, the owner comes back, what's he going to say? Out. 
you're in trouble because basically you just never connected to the owner. And I guess the Bible would say that's like this life and God. doesn't matter whether you think, oh, you're partying really hard or if you're trying your real best. If you're not connected with the owner, it's not just like we're sick that need a doctor. We're the dead that need a miracle. John Stott He was an English priest and theologian. He said, it is a failure to recognize this gravity of the human condition, which explains people's naive faith in superficial remedies. Let's be honest. If we don't realize quite how hopeless things are, what we think is a nice skinny latte will sort it all out first thing in the morning. If we don't realize how hopeless things are, a shopping spree in Westfield can change everything. If we don't realize how hopeless things are, a trip to the theater turns everything around. No one's saying those things are bad. It's just saying, do you realize how this has gone? You see, the Bible would teach that disobedience results in death. Adam and Eve, when they chose the fruit in the Garden of Eden, you can read about it in Genesis, first book of the Bible. Genesis 2, verse 15, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, you will certainly die. This is not bad people. This is all people. All of us, all of us must wear a mask. All of us are included. David, David, the the best king of Israel, when he's messed up, he says in Psalm 51, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Paul, when he's writing this letter, but he also writes another letter to the church in Rome. It says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man many were made sinners, so through the obedience of one many will be made righteous. This is not a modern value. We don't like it. We don't, I guess this is why people think, church, why would I go to church? Why would I watch? It's hopeless. We like to think of babies a bit like Anne Geddes. You know the pictures where she's always got babies that, you know, sort of, Naked that look absolutely cute with puppy dogs and flowers and all that kind of stuff. But if you're a parent, you realize this, you never teach your kids to do wrong. There's something there. John Stott says again this, Paul first plundered the depth of pessimism about man and then rises to the heights of optimism about God. I used to flippantly say, God helps those who help themselves. And it seemed an excuse to just try your best in life. But that is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is this. God helps the helpless. God helps his enemies. It says in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Why we were still sinners, Christ. So the the terrible news And I know people are quieter this morning. It's probably just because the masks are on. You can still shout an amen or hallelujah any time you feel appropriate. Amen. The terrible news is that it's hopeless. But that's the beauty of this passage. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Then the rest of the passage goes on with this message of hopefulness from God. Some have said the greatest phrase in the history of human speech is this. 
Oh, now you're listening. What is the greatest phrase in the history of human speech? But God. But God. And in this passage, and I wish I had longer to go through it, we discover God's love. It says in verse 4, his love. That means he has a commitment to bless you forever in Christ. Phil Moore, he leads a church in London, says this, only love could have made him do this because we had nothing to offer him except for the sin that made salvation necessary. But God, God is a God who loves you. God is a God who's full of mercy, it says in verse 4. That means he withholds the punishment that we deserve. Instead, it was unleashed upon Christ on the cross. Rich in mercy. Think about richness. I don't know about you. I always look at other people and think, oh, they must be rich. They're driving a Mercedes. They must be rich. They've got two cars. Let's be honest. Most of us think of richness as those that have got an excess. Well, God is rich in mercy. So that means he's got an excess of mercy for you today. You might say, oh, Pete, it's not been good for me in the last six or seven. All I know is God is full of mercy for you. He's kind. It says in verse 7, God shows kindness. God's compassion in coming to exchange places with us. And then in verse 5, in verse 7, and verse 8, it says, He is a God of grace. God generously given us what we don't need. So this whole passage goes from hopelessness to hopefulness. It goes from wrath to mercy. It goes from being dead to being alive. It goes from being a slave to being a child of God. All because of the grace of God. I love it, don't you? It's not what we earn. It's not what we deserve. It's what he freely gives to us. In Romans 11, Paul says, And if by grace, then it cannot be based upon works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. We don't have to pay. We don't have to earn it. It's, it's freely given. You might say to me, Pete, that is just too good to be true. And I would totally agree with you, which is why it's God's idea, not ours. Because so often, I'd be thinking, God, this is such a good thing. I reckon I could sell this and I could make some money on it. But God's. Paul also writes in 2 Timothy, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Not anything you've done. If you've not read your Bible, God still loves you. If you disobeyed me and sung in the last song, God still loves you. But God, it's God's grace. It's not what we deserve. It's not what we've earned. All of this is made possible because we are now in Christ. That's the phrase. I told you, I think a couple of weeks ago, Paul writes that phrase 164 times. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ you are made alive. It's a bit like a light bulb that's plugged in and suddenly you get all this light streaming out. Why? Because it's plugged in. Christ flows through us. In the Old Testament, there's this beautiful picture in Ezekiel 37, and this prophet looks out, and he just sees this valley of dry bones, and he prays, and he prophesies, and they all come back to life. Why is that? Because they're in Christ. That's a picture of the life that comes to us as we are in Christ. 
It says, in Christ, not only do we share in his death and resurrection, in Christ we are raised up. Jesus is our representative. We've been accepted in heaven because he's already in heaven. I was going to say Harry Kane this morning, which is really hard for me to say because I'm an Arsenal man and he's a Tottenham player. But actually, Everton's Dominic Calvert-Lewin is actually flying on scoring goals at the moment. The reality is that when one man kicks the ball into the net, the whole team wins. And if he's doing it for England, it's not just a team, it's a nation. One man kicks, but we'd all be cheering. That's what happens really in Christ. Jesus Christ died and rose. He is now in heaven, but because he has done that, my future is secure. That's grace. It says in Christ we are seated. Christ is already seated. Look, I know weddings under COVID are totally different affairs. But just cast your mind back pre-COVID. You'd go to a wedding and there'd be this seating plan, wouldn't there? And you know that you're okay because your name's there and it's written down. Well, I guess that's the banquet that Jesus talks about in the Bible. Our places are secure in him. I'm running out of time. You'll have to skip a slide, Josh. Keep up with me. Richard Cohen, he's a London Commission church planter. He says this, We are saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. I want you to realise this morning that your situation was hopeless, but God wants you to leave this place full of hope. That's the truth, isn't it? Hopeless, but now full of hope. In Luke 37, I wish I had time to read the passage to you. Jesus goes to the home of a religious Pharisee. I believe I've got a picture of the Pharisee and the woman coming up. The Pharisee was called Simon. The woman had lived a sinful life. She came to the table whilst Jesus was there. She is weeping And her tears fall upon his feet. She kisses Jesus' feet. She anoints him with oil. The Pharisee is outraged. Jesus then tells this story about a moneylender who forgave two people. One of them, it was 500 denarii, and the other it was 50. Jesus then asks the question to the Pharisee, Who would love him more? The Pharisee says, well, that's easy. It's the one who was forgiven much. Jesus then points out to the Pharisee, when I turned up at your house, you didn't give me any water to wash my feet. You did not greet me with a kiss, which was the custom in those days. You did not put oil on my head, which was a sign of honor in those days. You see, Jesus says, those who've been forgiven much, love much. And those who've been forgiven little, love little. So I guess my challenge to you is, how much do you love? How much do you feel you've been forgiven? How do you understand the grace of God to you today? This whole story that we've been reading, this passage from Ephesians, talks about going from hopeless to hopeful. 
John Piper said this, once we forget our need for a saviour, we will not cherish him. Oh, I don't think I need a saviour. I think I'm all right. I try my best in life. Look, I can just polish it up. Hopefully I'll get by. Now, actually, grace is we need a saviour. Some of you would have heard of um, John Newton. He was the slave trader. Slave trader that did many things he was totally shocked about. And then he met God. If you've seen the film, in the film, he's always crying after he's come to faith. And many say this was true of the guy himself. He felt so ashamed of what he'd done with his life and so amazed that God would love him. He was the one who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. Many of you go to church, you could sing Amazing Grace and there's four or five verses. If you look on the internet, they reckon there's 13 verses. Some reckon that John wrote them all. Others say his grace songs so inspired other people they've been writing them. All I love is the fact that grace was so good, he just couldn't get over the grace of God. I'd just like to say this is totally true for my, my own life. I was raised in a family that, you know, I went to church three times on a Sunday. We used to do Sunday school, then the morning meeting and the evening meeting. So I expect to see you all twice again today. We were named after disciples. My name's Peter. My brother's Philip. Yes, because we take our names from the Bible. The danger is we could end up so often thinking it was about what we'd done. I came to a point where I understood it was nothing about what I'd done. It was about the grace of God. I heard this guy, Terry Virgo, preach from Romans 6, 7, and 8. It was in the days when they had tapes. Yeah, some of you, you need to go home and look at that. It's not something you measure with. It's something we used to play music on, you know, record stuff off the TV on, that kind of thing. I listened to the tape again and again as I couldn't get over the fact that God loved me because he loved me because he loved me. It was not because of what I've done. There was a band at the time called Delirious. They used to sing this song. Here I am, humbled by your majesty, covered by your grace so free. Here I am, knowing I'm a sinful man, covered by the blood of the Lamb. Now I've found the greatest love of all is mine. Your grace has found me just as I am, empty-handed, but alive in your hands. I remember just singing that and singing it. They go, wow, you would love me like that. Tim Keller, American pastor, theologian, apologist, has said this, but in many respects, I think Paul wrote this initially. The gospel in one sentence, Ephesians 2 in one sentence says this, you are more sinful than you will admit and more loved than you could ever be hoped for. That's the gospel. That's what Paul was writing. Some of us don't want to admit that maybe things are bad. Some of us don't want to admit how hopeless things are. Some of us are still kidding ourselves we're going to do it. But actually, Paul writes and says, no, the grace of God is you are more loved than you could possibly imagine. And you think, Pete, I, I don't earn that. No, it is by grace. 